Well, before I read chapter 5, verse 13, by the way, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper also at the, beginning, at the end of my message this morning as we're doing here the Sundays before Easter, last, and the next four Sundays we'll be doing that just to focus our minds on the, the crucifixion of Christ. You're a believer in Christ, trusting in Him, by all means, celebrate with us. 1 John 5.13, let me just go ahead and read it. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I want to quote for you from uh, Thomas Brooks, a nonconformist English Puritan, lived around the 1600s. He said this, It is the very drift and design of the whole Scripture to bring souls first to an acquaintance with Christ, and then to an acceptance of Christ, and then to build them in a sweet assurance of their actual interest in Christ. Let me read that again. It's the very drift and design of the whole of Scripture. So this is the design and path of Scripture, is to bring souls first to an acquaintance of Christ, and then to an acceptance of Christ, and then to build them in a sweet assurance of their actual interest in Christ. Three words, acquaintance, acceptance, and then assurance. And, and that is the plan of the Bible, right? First, we can become acquainted with God. The early books of the Bible tell us about God, tell us who He is, what He does, how He redeems people, the law He sets in place. The history of Israel then shows why we need a Savior. We can't keep that law and prepares the way for Jesus, just acquainting us with God. And over and over, we see God and who He is, and we see we and who we are. The Bible's not a a book, it's a story of good people doing good things enough to earn God's favor, but it's a story of, of wicked people going their wayward ways and God in His grace saving, saving them through His grace. And once we're acquainted with the Bible and we understand and, and see our, our God and we see what He's like and we see our sin and our need for a Savior, then comes Jesus in the New Testament and we're called to accept Him Accept the Son into our lives, our Savior. And from Moses to the prophets, to Jesus, to the apostles, we hear this similar, similar command, repent and believe. Turn, trust in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. There it is, accepting Jesus. And then, after coming to faith, we read in the Bible over and over and over again the many times in which it gives us assurances of our salvation in Christ. We read of God's promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Just a promise there that, that God is going to be faithful to His people. Or the power of Christ to keep us. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I also memorized uh, at the beginning of the year, it's a church family, the fighter verse for us. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations to those who love Him, who keep His commandments. There's the, the God's faithfulness will stay with us and we can have assurance that everything God promised is true. And, and all these things, all these passages just mount up and continue to give us assurance that indeed we are right and accepted in God's and indeed, the flow of the Bible is the flow of John's writings. You think of the Gospel of John. And why did he write? He wrote to tell us about Jesus. Or, or you might say it this way. He wrote to give us an acquaintance with Christ. He told us what Jesus did and, and what Jesus said to, to shape and, and show us who Christ is. And, and the aim of the acquaintance, though, was the acceptance. 
The purpose of 1 John comes right at the end. John 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This one I've acquainted you to. The Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John wrote his gospel. You might be acquainted with Jesus. You might accept Jesus and believe in Him that you might have life. And when it comes to 1 John, we get the whole assurance perspective. Because it's not merely knowing about Jesus... Nor is it believing about Jesus that is John's aim. John's aim is that we would be fully assured of our acceptance in Christ, that we have eternal life. That's what he said, what I read, 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. We're going to look at that one simple verse, but we're going to look at that verse in the context of 1 John so we'll go through 1 John a couple times, just kind of looking for the themes that this verse brings up. You might break this verse down easily into two parts. First, there's the audience, and then there is the assurance. The audience found the first half of the verse. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That is, he's writing to believers. He's writing to the family of God. He's writing to the church. His intent, although it can be used this way, and it often is this way, is not necessarily evangelistic, but certainly last week was evangelistic as we... Preach through verse 11 and 12. This is a testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son is a life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have a life. It brings up questions. Do I have the Son of God? But primarily, it's not an evangelistic letter. It's a, it's a letter written to those in the church, those who believe. That's the audience. And the assurance comes in the second half. That you may know that you have eternal life. John's purpose in writing this, and as we've been going through this, I hope this is my aim and my prayer and my hope, is that you know that you have eternal life. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's not you know you have eternal life. You know that you know that you have eternal life. And that's where John is, is, is aiming to, to cause us to be sure of where we will spend eternity for those of us who've trusted in Christ. Now, you know, there's many things about the future that's uncertain. We don't know how long we're going to live on the earth. We just don't, don't know. It could be a, a fire tornado tomorrow. It takes our lives I'm not predicting it. I don't think so. But we could be struck by an illness. Could have some accident. We don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know how, long, how good our health is going to be. We just hope and pray and trust that God is going to be gracious to us to give us the health that we need to, to accomplish this task. We don't know how long our jobs will last. We don't know the direction our country is going to take in the next few years. We don't know who's going to be elected. We don't even know who's running. Just all, all up in the air. You're a sports fan. We don't know who's going to win tomorrow's game or today's game. Whoever's playing. I don't, I don't even know. Football is like whatever. We, do, we don't know. In fact, there's really nothing guaranteed in this life. Except, of course, I think it's, was it uh, Benjamin Franklin said? He said, what? Two things. Tell me. Death and taxes, right? However, John tells us there's something that we can know about the future. We can know that we have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And when you think about all the uncertainties of life, this ought to come across as, as fresh air to us. I mean, because the promise of life, the problem isn't just of life tomorrow. It's the promise of life forever. It, it, it's promise like into eternity. Next thousand, thousand, thousand years. My daughter's involved in a play, Peter Pan. And uh, one of the things about Peter Pan, you know the story, 
right? That, that he's a little boy. And what he says, he says, I won't grow up. And, and kind of, so what does that mean? It means that Peter Pan lives in this never, never fantasy land and he is not going to grow up. And uh, in this play, and of course in the story, Peter Pan is there and he goes off and he takes Wendy and Michael and John and take them off. They have this big adventure and then, then they come back and, and then later on you see Peter Pan comes back, but Wendy, she's old. And John and Michael, whatever the boys' names are, they're old and they're gone. But Peter Pan hasn't aged at all. That's a, that's a slight taste of eternity, what we're talking about. It's talking about eternal life. And so I don't know where your heart is this morning as you sit here. You may be sitting here not believing. Well, that's, that's kind of the first half of this verse. You may be sitting here believing, but you're not really knowing about, am I really have eternal life? Is that, is that for sure in my life? Maybe you're doubting about your, your faith and your belief. My hope and prayer for you today is that you would leave today knowing that you know that you have eternal life. Well, we've outlined this morning, I've turned these points of the audience and the, um, uh, the assurance into two questions. First question is, do you believe? Or as John says, do you believe in the name of the Son of God? His name, of course, is Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe He existed in eternity past with the Father? That He came into flesh, born of the Virgin Mary? That He lived a sinless life here upon the earth? was suffered and was crucified and rose from the dead for our justification. Uh, are you placing your hope in Him? Do you believe in Him? Do you trust in Him? That's what it means to believe. It means to, it means to trust. Do you believe in Jesus? So what I want to do is work through First John and just look at what First John tells us about Jesus and just say, are you believing in this Jesus? Look back to chapter 1, verse 1. First three verses tell us a lot about Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These verses get at the very humanity of Jesus. I mean, John's experience with Jesus was very human. He saw him, he heard him, he touched him. But he experienced Jesus here on earth uh, much, like, much like the closest of friends. In fact, when John wrote his gospel, he never referred to himself as the Apostle John or, or John. He just referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. The friend of Jesus. The close one. Like, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the closest one to Jesus. And that's who... John knew, and he touched him and saw him and heard him. And, and he experienced him as, as a friend in all his humanness. John saw Jesus when he was tired from his journey and had to rest at the well. We had to talk with the Samaritan woman, story told in John 4. John saw Jesus extend compassion to the woman caught in adultery, story told in John chapter 8. John saw Jesus weep when Lazarus died and his sisters without hope. John saw the righteous anger of Jesus when he made a whip out of cords and drove out the money changers from the temple saying, my house should be called the house of prayer. You made it into a den of thieves. John saw Jesus make breakfast and eat breakfast. In fact, by the way, you know how Jesus makes breakfast? Breakfast. <laughs> That's how he makes it. 
John saw him in physical pain on the cross. John saw him die in every bit of his humanness. Do you believe that he was fully human? You know, oftentimes there are, there are stories of folklore that, that never really existed, but, but, but existed in literature that we come and, and we, we come to, to like or appreciate. Like I know my daughter's reading about Anne of Green Gables, and Anne Shirley is certainly some girls here, some women have probably loved Anne Shirley. <laughs> I like Anne Shirley, but Anne Shirley isn't real. Anne Shirley's a fun, talkative girl. Or Tom Sawyer, maybe, maybe you like his wit and you love his, his quest for adventure. But Tom Sawyer's not real. Or maybe even Peter Pan, right? We like the heart that says, I want to stay young forever, but, but Peter Pan's not real. Or Charlie Brown, for those of you melancholy sort of people. Like the lessons he taught us about life and humility in the real world, always getting beat up. And, and you, you might like Charlie Brown, but Charlie Brown's not real. And Jesus is no different. He's, he's, um, Jesus is different, rather. He's not this folklore, right? He's not this, he's not this person in this story, in this book. He is real. And that's what John's saying. We, we touched him. We felt him. We heard him. We walked with him. Do you believe in that Jesus? Let's carry on. 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that the blood of Jesus cleanses your sins? That's the Jesus that John wrote about. What verse 7 says, right? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As strange as it may sound, the blood of Jesus is a cleansing agent. When John had the privilege of seeing this heavenly glory and he saw a multitude from every nation and tribe and tongue and peoples, a number so many that he couldn't count them. They were standing before the, the, the Lamb and before the throne and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they were worshiping God, saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And discussion with he and, a, and an angel was about who exactly this multitude was. And the angel told them, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Of course, there's symbolism around here. Right? The literal blood of Jesus could never wash a multitude of robes. Okay? I mean, whatever. We have a gallon of blood in us, maybe. Five quarts, maybe a little over a gallon. And, and that couldn't go to wash a multitude if it was literal blood. And, and also, literal blood doesn't wash white. But the picture is beautiful about the surpassing value cleansing properties of the death of Christ as pictured in his blood which sheds for us and cleanses us from our sin that's the picture of the white robe in Revelation chapter 7 you believe in the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus verse 7 right the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin if you believe and trust in Christ your sin has been cleansed through the blood of Jesus the death of Christ do you believe the power of that? That one death could atone for so many? It's the Jesus we're talking about, do you believe in? 
So what John was getting at in chapter 3, verse 8, which says the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil was the agent that brought sin into this world. He's the one that seduced Eve. And Adam took. And Adam, being our federal head, brought sin to every single one of us. And all the messes that we know in life come from that event. And Satan was right in the middle of it. And he brought the mess. Jesus is the agent to clean that mess. The mess that sin has brought in the world is immense, but the power of the cross is sufficient to clean the mess. You know, we leave messes at our home. Poor Yvonne lives with a house full of messies. And uh, she is like constantly cleaning. And I thank you for that. (laughs) Otherwise our house would look differently than it does but it looks very clean because we have a cleaning agent and we could do better. But Jesus is the ultimate cleansing agent. The blood of Jesus cleans all messes up. See, the Son of God gives, gives life to all who believe. Chapter 4, verse 9. In this the love of God is made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so we might live through Him. We live through His death and death on the cross. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, right? The wrath-appeasing sacrifice of God that turns God's wrath away from us. And the work of Jesus upon the cross was powerful enough to destroy the works of the devil and to avert God's wrath and to give us life. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the total cleansing power of the blood of Christ? You know, really, a good way to test if you believe is whether you're confessing your sins because that's what verse 9 says. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think this means confessing our sins to God. It means confessing our sins to others. It means humbly admitting the error of your ways. And confession shows that you're not trying to be good enough for God to accept you. It says, I'm not good enough. And here's my sins. But I am confessing them because I'm not trying to hide them but I'm confessing them saying, God, I know that in Christ forgiveness comes. That Jesus, you are mighty to save. Do you believe the humanness of Jesus? Do you believe the power of His death, the atoning work on the cross? Do you believe in the sinlessness of Jesus? This follows closely as atoning work because Jesus could never atone unless He was sinless. Chapter 3, verse 5. One little spot in here about Jesus. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. You remember when he preached through Leviticus, so how often it was talking about a spotless lamb, how, how it had to be a, an unblemished ram, how a, how a, a, a one-year-old flung the herd. It, always talking about it can't have any sort of marks or defects in it. Well, that was, that was to symbolize and anticipate just the, just the sinless son who had come. Fully human, yes. But sinless. And that's because He was divine. He was with the Father. That was chapter 1, verse 2. Right? The, the life was made manifest. And we testified to you and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father made manifest to us. That there was, there was this eternal life with God, Jesus Himself, who came down. And there is the incarnation, the hypostatic union, that fully man, fully God in one person. It's amazing. Do you believe that he was sinless? Do you believe Jesus is the only way to God? John, John did. Chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, the, the Son and the Father are, 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 are connected such you can't, you can't take them apart. If you deny the Son, you do not have the Father. If you confess the Son, you have the Father also. That's exactly what verse 23 says. But 23 is in the negative. No one who denies the Son is the Father. If you deny the Son, you do not have God. But if you confess the Son, you have the Father also because they are one. In other words, Jesus is the only way to God. There's no other way. If you try to get to God any other way apart from Jesus, you will not get there. It's exactly what Jesus said, John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I've heard it said before, there are many paths to God. Well, that's true if the path goes through Jesus. Because many of us, right, experience different families, different backgrounds, different cultures, different experiences. There's lots of different paths to Jesus, but there's one path to the Father, and that's through Jesus. I remember the story of R.C. Sproul when he was considering... Um, and my recollection is, is pretty vague on this, but I remember hearing him speaking one time talking about moving this ministry from Ligonier. And uh, I think his board was looking at three locations. As I remember the story right, I think it's true. He, they were looking at Colorado Springs, right? Christian Mecca, Dallas, Christian Mecca, and Orlando, Florida. And as they were thinking about these three, um, I remember R.C. talking to his board and he said, um, you know, we, we can relocate to any of these places, um, as long as that place is Orlando, Florida. And I don't know how, how it was that he said that's where it was, but kind of like all, all paths lead to God if, if, they just, if they lead to Jesus. Jesus is the only way. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is the only way? Because to believe that is to deny Hinduism. To believe that is to deny Buddhism. To believe that is to deny Islam. To believe that is to deny Judaism in its current form, denying Jesus. To believe that Jesus is the only way is to deny New Age and paganism, secularism. To believe that is to say that, that Christianity is the only way that you will ever get to God. It is pronouncing a condemnation on a majority of the world. To believe this is to say that Neither Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims or Jews or any others who seek salvation apart from Jesus. They do not have God. They are destined for destruction. Do you believe that? That's the Jesus that John would call us to believe. He's the only way to God. And I think John is furthermore getting at that in chapter 4, 14 and 15. And we have seen and testified the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Right? It's, it's Jesus, you confess him, and then you abide in God, and God abides in you. And the corollary is just as true. If you don't confess Jesus, you do not abide in God, and God does not abide in you. I mean, just that, that corollary is right there. I, I read earlier the verses we looked at last week. Verse 11 and 12 from chapter 5. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have a life. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. It means to believe in a, in a human Jesus. It means to believe in a, a powerful, atoning, working Jesus. It means to believe in a, a sinless Jesus. It means to believe in a unique Jesus, that Jesus is the only way to God, Jesus. Do you believe that? 
Because that's what Christianity is. And that all came from 1 John. For exposition so wonderful. We just pull it from the text. It's right there. Our Christology in 1 John which came out. If you believe, then be assured that John is writing to you. These, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And I think that if you deny any of those things, you say, well, I think he's got a great atoning work, but I don't think that he was human. Well, that's the very thing that John combated in chapter 4, one, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The, 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 the spirit that confesses the humanness of Jesus is from God. But if you don't confess that, you've, you've missed it. Or you, you say, well, I believe in Jesus, but it's not his work on the cross. He really didn't come and rise from the dead. You, you're missing, you got to believe all those things about who he was, preexistent with the Father, coming and living among us, living a sinless life along, among us, having an atoning work, saves all who believe that Jesus is the only way to God. That's the Jesus of John he's telling us to believe in. And if there's some of those things you're doubting about, well, maybe those doubts are why you doubt assurance. You have eternal life. Do you believe? But second question, do you know? Or do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know? Do you know that you know that you have eternal life? Because there are those who believe who aren't assured in their hearts that they indeed will have eternal life. Um, John Newton had a, had a friend who was like this. William Cooper just dealt with depression often. Felt in the dark days and many times in the days of depression and darkness, there's, there's just swirling. You, you, the assurance just isn't there. And John Newton tried to just continue to bring the gospel to him. And just assure him of Christ's sufficiency and, and, and work. And so there are times of darkness where that is. And there are other times, maybe disobedience, where your assurance isn't there. But you can have full assurance if you just follow John's counsel. Now, it's interesting. When I studied the topic of assurance this week, there are several ways to come to the assurance of faith. And um, one is through believing the promises of God and the character of God. So in other words, God has promised eternal life to those who believe in Jesus. And yes, I believe in Jesus. Therefore, if your logic holds, I have eternal life. And as, as you see then what God's character is like, and you see the things he's promised, and you see how he's trustworthy, and he keeps his promises, and then you see the promises, that's a way to assurance. I think that's a valid way for assurance. So for instance, when Jesus said, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know that God promised us eternal life, but believe in Jesus. And we know the character of God. He doesn't break his promises. We saw last week he doesn't lie, Titus 1-2. Then we can have assurance that what he said is true. We can have eternal life. Now, there are many promises like this in the Bible. So just start thinking. I've only got maybe four or five out of hundreds. Our fighter verse this week, right? We spent some time with family. Romans 8-1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. You trust and believe in Christ Jesus and no condemnation awaits us. And you believe that God says, means what he says and keeps his promises. There it is. You can have assurance. Or Romans 8, 32. After going through all the Romans, Paul comes and he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us 
with Him graciously give us all things. In other words, if, if Christ came and that, that God didn't even spare Jesus for us, what's, if He gave us His Son, what else are we going to lack? And at the very end of Romans, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing you can be assured of the promises of God. And Jesus gave plenty of promises of eternal life. Just consider the Gospel of John. I'll just pull some out. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. John 10, my sheep will hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. There's the promise of Jesus says that I've got them, I'm keeping them, no one's snatching them from my hand. Well, is Jesus true? Well, we trust in Jesus. We see the character of Jesus. We can have assurance. And you can then add to this just many verses from throughout the Bible that just talk about the character and the promises of God. And, and, and what happens is as you, as you read these verses and as you hear these verses and over, over the years you just think about these verses, you think about the promise of God, you think about the character of God and it's just like, like piling up mounds of evidence of God. Joshua 21.45, talking about Israel. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord God made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So you think about, well, if God promised to Israel these great things and He brought them all to be, isn't He one who brings everything to be? That happened in history. Everything He promises comes to pass. Psalm 91, right at the end, the last two verses, 15 and 16. When He calls on me, I will answer Him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Psalm 91, talk about perfecting, protecting hands of God. Surrounds us like a, an eagle with eagle's wings. Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is a faithful, great and faithful God. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure this, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful, surely he will do it. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful, he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Or even 1 John 2.25, and this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. He's promised us eternal life. And if you believe and trust the word, you can say, yes, I have assurance because the Bible says it. And I know God is, is true. And in fact, the longer you, you walk with God, you not only just see the, see the Bible verses mounting, but you see your life mounting, testifying to the faithfulness of God time and time again. And then we see the trustworthiness of His Word. So it's not just a mere academic, syllogistic sort of thing, but it's something where you, you see God's Word coming to pass all the time. You embrace it more and more, the promises of God, and then the assurance grows in our hearts. John Newton said it this way, Assurance grows by repeated conflict. 
a repeated experimental proof of the Lord's power and goodness to save. When we've brought, been brought very low and helped, sorely wounded and healed, cast down and raised again, having given up all hope and then been suddenly snatched from danger and placed in safety. And when these things have been repeated to us and in us a thousand times over, we begin to learn and trust the simple word and power of God beyond and against appearances. And this trust, when habitual and strong, bears the name of assurance for even assurance has degrees. She was talking about, he's talking about you got a trial and you're taken down and there's some some difficulty. and, And then you see God take you through that trial and you get out of the trial. You're like, oh, that's interesting. God brought me through. And then you have another trial in life that comes that's, that's different in some ways. And then, and then God brings you through. And then you're, you're like, like totally hope and totally without, without hope. And then God comes and brings through. And then, and then these evidences mount more and more and more. And as they mount more and more and more, as, as John Newton said, assurance has degrees. You come to trust God more and more and more and more and more and more. So this even being assured that you have eternal life, you may know you have eternal life. I, I think there's a, a degree of this. Are you, are you mostly sure? Are you absolutely sure? But as we go through these evidences of life, affirm the, the truthfulness of God. And, and those of you who walked with God for years can affirm this, of just how God has been faithful and, and gracious to affirm His love and His care for you. And that's a, a good path for assurance. But here's what's interesting, is that's where theologies go, that's where people go, but that's not where John goes. Okay? He does a little bit, First John 2.25, which I, I read earlier. But predominantly what John says is, is if you want assurance, in First John chapter 5, verse 13, John says, well, he doesn't say this, but he doesn't look to God and His character and His promises, but rather he argues by saying this, don't look at God, he says, look at yourself. Okay, now you gotta, you gotta read that right, rightly because he's not saying, well, just look, look at yourself because that could be so deceiving. But he's saying this. He says, look at God working in your life. And if God is working in your life, you can be assured that He is genuine and real in your life. And if God is genuine and real in your life, then you know that you have eternal life. And that sort of argument's made elsewhere in Scripture as well. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. After talking about these various virtues, listen to what Peter said. For if these virtues, <clears throat> right, like, like uh, faith and knowledge and godliness and, and love and self-control, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he is blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, the virtues that God is working in your life is an evidence and fruit that God is, God is working there. And that's the very thing that keeps you. It's the very thing that, that brings you into his kingdom by the assurance of that. That's, that's how Peter argued. He said, said, look for those sort of things that, that are in your life. And if they are in your life, you'll never fail. You'll never fail to, entrance the kingdom, to enter the kingdom. Paul argues that in Galatians 5. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And I love this illustration because it's, it's the salvation is, is of God. He gives the Spirit and then He is the one that works these things and affects them in our life. And so as we look and see these things in our life, we can have assurance that, 
Yes, God is real in my life. One of the songs we sing at Kids Club goes like this. Many of the kids know it, right? Love, joy, peace, and patience too. If you know it, just talk with me. Grow in those who trust in you, all who put their hope in Christ. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, and gentleness. Here we go. Live in those who have new life. It's it's the fruit of the Spirit lives in those who have the new life. And that's what John is calling us to. He's just saying, look at your life. And and if you truly are saved, you truly do believe, God's going to be working this in your life. That's what he's arguing. And as you see that, the assurance will come. And what's interesting about this one, the first one is maybe more objective and external. This one is more subjective and internal, but gives the assurance as well as what John says. All right, so here's some questions. Help you in that process. Just what John would say. Do you walk in the light? Do you walk in the light? First John 1, 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light is a metaphor for righteousness. It's a, it's a metaphor for walking um, open. See, those who sin walk in the cover of darkness because they want to keep their sin hidden. But the one who walks in the light, walks in the right way, is open about his, his life, not trying to hide anything because you're not ashamed of your life because you're walking with God. Now, certainly there are some th- things where you sin and you are ashamed, but, but open in the light says, I'm just going to confess those. And, and that's just going to be open. I'm not trying to do this dark hiding sinful, live on my own way sort of thing. See, the Christian life isn't a perfect life. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. It's not that we live sinless, but rather the the Christian life is a a confessing life. Chapter 1, verse 9, we talked about that. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The the, the Christian life is a a life that, that, that seeks God and seeks to walk in a sinless way. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The, the desire of a child of God is that I won't sin. Do you see desires to sin in your life? Or do you see that you're walking in the light? What about do you keep the commandments? Do you keep His commandments? Chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Notice how emphatic John is with the word know. Same word, gnoskos, in chapter 5, verse 13. We, we know through relationship and knowledge and experience. Right? By this we know that we have come to know Him. We know that we know Him. How? If we keep His commandments. And, and notice how emphatic He is. Just saying, we're, we're, we know this. And that leads to assurance. It's how we know that we have assurance of eternal life. We keep His commandments. And John explains, whoever says, I know Him, but doesn't keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, here it is, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. You see, it's the love of God that's perfected that comes out in keeping His word. That's the heart. Are you doing what God says? Are you listening and obeying? A few weeks ago, we looked at how these commandments should be kept. Chapter 5, verse 13. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. 
In other words, when God saves a soul, he puts in that soul a heart for obedience. Wasn't that the promise of the new covenant? I will take away this heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh, right? That will have the law written on it. That, that will want to do what's right and what's good. David in Psalm 27 it sees this heart for obedience. It says, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To acquire in his temple. David wanted nothing more but to be with God in his temple because his heart was with God. Or Psalm 27 verse 8. You have said, David saying, you have said, God, you said seek my face. And David responds and says, your face, O Lord, do I seek. That's, that's the heart of obedience. That's the heart that keeps the commandments of God. When, when God says, seek my face, okay, I'll seek your face. When God says this, you say, okay. When God says this, you say, okay. When God says this, you say, okay. Because not, not to earn or merit anything, but because that's, that's the heart that God has worked on that you just delight to do. You walk in the light to keep his commandments. If you do, those things will give you assurance. But here's, if you don't walk in the light, right? you're believing in Jesus, but there's stuff in your life that's kind of darkness that's hiding, you will lack assurance. If there's disobedience in your life, you will, you will lack assurance. Maybe truly saved, eternally secure, but you may lack assurance. And an assured life is so much happier. So much happier than an insecure, unassured life. The third question, do you love the brothers? It's been a major theme of John. Over and over, do you love? Chapter 2, 9 through 11. Whoever says he's in the light, I'm in the light. But he hates his brother, is still in the darkness. So in other words, the hating his brother is, is a proof that you're in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him... There's no cause for stumbling. You love your brother, you're in the light. But where he hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness, does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He, he, he walks in the darkness. But the one who loves is in the light. Or chapter 3, verse 10. I mean, this is real black and white. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It's clear. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you don't love your brother, you are not of God. Well, your brother here, it's talking about fellow believers. And then he talks about a literal brother. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers. The world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. There's that knowledge word again. Because we love the brothers. Right, the proof of our knowledge that we've passed into life is our love. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But, it, but see, when eternal life abides in us, it expresses itself in love. But if eternal life is not abiding in us, it may express itself in murder and hate. That's exactly what verse 15 says. Or chapter 4, verse 7. Here again, you see, God in us... Right, producing what he does. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. See, our love for others comes from God. Where does it come from? It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you find in your life you're, you're loving and you're serving, you can say, you know what? I, I, I know that that comes from God. I know God's in my life, and I know I have eternal life. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. See, there's there's a flip side. And so I just ask you, are you extending self-sacrificial love for believers that gives, that stretches, that extends as far as you can? Or are you like, oh, I'm, I'm here. I got my own little life. But the life of one who God has transformed is, is out there and willing to love and look not to your own interests, but you look to the interests of others. As you see that in your life, it, it builds assurance. It brings assurance into your life. Do you walk in the light? Do you obey his commandments? Do you love the brethren? Do you strive for righteousness? It's another theme. Chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous... And God is righteous because it says in chapter 3, verse 5, right? In him there is no sin. If you know that he's righteous, and you do, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Notice the tense. I have been born of him, therefore I practice righteousness. And everyone who does practice righteousness has been born of him. It's because it's God working in you. And as you see God working in you, that's where the assurance comes from. Chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children. Now we are. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the hope of the coming of Christ. And then when he comes, we'll be like him. And it says then in in chapter 3, verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you hope in him, you'll purify yourself like Christ is pure and righteous. You will seek righteousness. And that's what verses 4 through 9 say. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, there are, there are words there that the English Standard Version brings out well, the Greek present tense, which is the, which is the, the pattern. Right? We're not talking about perfection here, but we're talking about pattern. Chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We do sin, but it's like, what, what's, what's your pattern? If your pattern is a, is a righteous life, you can know that you are from God. In fact, chapter 3, verse 9 even says, it's God's seed that abides in him. And because God's seed has been abiding you, you cannot keep on sinning. Sin cannot be a pattern in your life. And if sin, you see that sin isn't a pattern in my life, then I can rejoice that indeed I have assurance. Do you walk in light? Do you obey his commandments? Do you love the brothers? Do you strive for righteousness? I mean, these, these are the things that will lead to assurance. Now, I've, I've alluded to this already, but, but think about this. Think about if we chart, okay, assurance per time, okay? This, this is time, right, as so we go along, and here's the measure of assurance. And just like uh, John Newton said, right, that, that, that assurance does grow. There's a growth in assurance. And what should happen is your assurance versus time graph is as you walk with God more, you might have some ups and downs, you might have times of darkness, you might have a big dip, you might have a, a big, but your, your assurance should continue to grow. And I would say if you superimpose your graph, however you can do this, your graph of walking the light, keeping the commandments, right, loving God, pursuing righteousness, I would guess that there's a pretty close correlation between those two. 
In other words, when, when God is working in your life and you see some sanctification, see some fruit from that, you, can, you, you will be assured, yes, I'm on the right path. And to the degree that you see that, you will know that assurance even more. Well, let, let me close one, one, one before we transition to the Lord's Supper by talking about one negative about assurance. One way the Bible never argues for assurance is by looking at some past experience or some decision that was made. And sadly, there are people all over America and, and probably all over the world that, that look back on some kind of prayer they prayed at some emotional gathering or some kind of prayer they prayed with mom when they were eight years old and to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. Why am I a Christian? Well, because of, of that event back there. The, the Bible doesn't ever like look back. The Bible says, look now. What kind of life are you living now? Now's when you have the assurance. Is God's fruit working in me now? The Bible never says, oh, don't you remember that time when you signed that commitment card? If you can find a verse like that in the Bible, I'd love to see it. But it doesn't. It always talks about how if you continue in the faith, right? Stay steadfast. Keep pressing on. And those are the things that help and show assurance is, is right now. And so as you ask these questions of you, do you have assurance? I just say, what's your life look like right now? And to the extent that God is working in your life, the assurance will come. And you can have assurance that we have eternal life. Let's pray and then we'll transition to the, the supper.